Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Today, I'll be talking to two theater artists, one writes plays, and the other brings them to life. My first guest is the great American playwright John Guare, best known for his plays Landscape of the Body, House of Blue Leaves, and Six Degrees of Separation, Guare's absurdist style and use of songs, asides, and monologues keeps his audiences on edge. Guare's good friend, the late Louis Malle, wrote about Guare that his, quote, brilliance at tearing apart the logical and the expected make him stand pretty much alone, unquote. A lifelong New Yorker, Guare lives in Greenwich Village with his wife Adele. He writes every day, anywhere he can, he says, to keep from getting sick. He's taught playwriting at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, NYU, and Juilliard. John Guare says teaching others ultimately helps his own work. I selfishly use the class to teach what I'm going through, to teach problems that I'm having that they don't know it. But if I'm having this last time... You're having them solve your problems. Well, no, like once, many years ago, I taught at Yale back in like 81 to 85 or something. I um, was having trouble starting a play. I was having great trouble with exposition. I thought of all those 19th century plays, you know, where the butler comes, the two servants come in, and they say, oh, you know, 5 o'clock, the master not home yet. And they just say, yes, ever since, you know, I mean, or else the phone or the the heroine, you know, the wife, the family picks up the telephone and says, no, 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 we're not here because we're involved in this terrible divorce case, and my, but everything is fine with us, and we'll be back, you know. And I could not figure out how to begin a play in a neat way. So I thought about Moss Hart said was something rather true and fantastic. He said, the audience will give you 15 minutes, will give any play 15 minutes that they'll listen to it. But at the 16th minute, there is some connected whether to the base of your spine or whatever. A light goes on. A light goes on, and you'll say, I either want to go on this trip or I don't want to go on this trip. So I said, I'm just going to take the first 15 minutes of my favorite plays and go through them. And I just taught the first 15 minutes of The Homecoming, the first 15 minutes of Waiting for Godot, the first 15 minutes of The Cherry Orchard, the first 15 minutes of The Orchestra. Every week we just say, what do we learn in the first 15 minutes of these plays? And it was spectacular. Did it help you unlock the play? Oh, it was spectacular. And it's something I'm still learning. It's something where I'm still fun. I still go back to that class. Do you find that it's that it's difficult to teach someone how to write? No, you only can help them to find. You can't teach right. them. Okay. All you can do is help them to say to help them find their own voice. Because young playwrights are clever, and they're fantastic ventriloquists, and they can write a play that sounds like Sam Shepard or David Mamet or Harold Pinter. And mimic. And mimic, mimic, mimic. But to help them find their own voice, that is the key. Mm. And they might write a 50-page play, and there might be four lines where you say, "That's I've never heard that voice before. Mm. That's original. That's where you've got to find that. Where, and you where feel do, that's the task. Yeah, it's about finding your own voice. And, and why did help. you stop? Uh... 
It just got no fun. And it was the last time I taught was last year. I was writer in residence at Hunter, and Hunter to me was spectacular. Hunter was great because these were kids that it cost them. I mean, you know, to pay eight thousand dollars. The money was real. The money was real, and they would make take them seven or eight years to get a degree because they're working. And uh, you know, and there was one young woman who wrote a play about being trapped in the projects uptown, you know. And I said, it's so, this play was so interesting. I said, but, you know, the problems that are in your play, I can't, I can't solve them. But you know who has solved, dealt with your problems you're dealing with? Samuel Beckett. Read Waiting for Godot, reading, you know, Endgame, trying to get out. And she said the most wonderful words, who's Samuel Beckett? <laughs> and that, to me, was because you get kids... At, at unnamed schools of higher learning, and you'll say Samuel Beckett, and they'll say, I know Samuel Beckett. I know all about him. I know all about him. I took a class. They were going to graduate, you know, uh, but in 10 days or so. And we had, it was the last class we were talking. And it turned out that none of them in the class had read Madame Bovary or seen a Marx Brothers movie. And I said, you have no right to get this degree. You should say, well, I'm sorry, I, I can't, I, I should, <laughs> until you go back and read and see at least, you know, to see... Uh, animal crackers. Animal crackers or duck soup. No, duck soup they'd have to see. Uh, because all modern heroines come out of Madame Bovary. Blanche Bois had a gavel. They're all the daughters of uh, Madame Bovary. And uh, it's... Um, yeah. So, and but you'll say that with and each of them said, "Well, they say I know about Madame Bovary. I mean, it's by Flaubert. I know all about them. Marx Brothers. They're anarchic, right? Yeah. And one doesn't speak, and one is wise. Yeah, I know all about them. But have you ever seen? Them? No, I don't have to. I yeah. know about them. Right. So, I just got bored teaching. You you grew up in Queens. You grew, you're a lifelong New Yorker. I'm born in Manhattan. I'll tell you, it's so funny. We my parents lived in the 400 block on 86 East 86th Street. And they wanted to be closer to Columbia Presbyterian when I was born. So they learned that the people who had built our apartment house on 86th Street had built the identical apartment house up on Fort Washington Avenue. So we moved when I was born to the same apartment. And then it was too far away from the beach because I really call my home Atlantic, East Atlantic Beach, a place where I still go, a house my father built with his buddies in 1930. And you I, still have I, I still have it. I still go there. It's great. And that I call, that I call home. That's where all my friends are. And, uh, and it was too far. It was too hard to get from Fort Washington down to Penn Station. So they learned that those builders had built the exact same apartment uh, in uh, Jackson Heights. So they moved to the same apartment again with the furniture fit. And uh, so I grew up there because it was also in the same block as St. Joan of Arc Grammar School. I didn't have to cross the street. Do you have any siblings? None. You were an only child? Absolutely. It was great. And, the, and then when you, were, you, were your parents theater goers? Were they estates in that way? They liked musicals, only yeah. liked musicals. And yeah. what about you? What was the theater in your life when you were a child? Well, I, I mean, it was magnificent. I mean, you I went? Could, well, sure, Annie Get Your Gun was the first show I saw. And uh, with Ethel Merman. And it was, I can still remember it. It was absolutely devastating. It was still it was shocking that that could happen. And it was mainly the I am the now racist, I'm an Indian too, with this great ballet by, um, I found it years later, by Eugene Loring. It was spectacular. It was, I must say it was terrifying because they were going to put uh, Ethel Merman, they were tying her up at the stake and they were going to burn her and eat her and everything. It was all, oh, my God. There was no business. That might like, have taken a little bit of time to burn and eat oh, Ethel Merman. No, she would have gone up for no. You think so? Oh, yeah. And... Um, uh, no, we saw just saw musicals. I could see, and I can remember, like, for my 12th or 13th birthday, I could see one show. I could pick either King and I or Wish You Were Here. And which one did I pick? Well, I picked Wish You Were Here because King and I had some old lady named Gertrude Lawrence who'd always be around, I'd see. But Wish You Were Here had a swimming pool on stage. And it was high diving and swimming and water ballets. It was great. <laughs> and Eddie Fisher sang the hit song, They're Not Making the Skies as Blue This Year. And I saw that. And it was, uh, and then I started going to see plays. And uh, yeah. Well, the t- TV hadn't taken off in the, in the 50s. To, it was about to. 
Were you a film goer as well? Did you enjoy films, or was the theater always? Preferred? No, I'll tell you something. I didn't. I'll tell you. The movie saved me because in 1949, my father had a heart attack. This was so great, and he had to had to take a year off from work. And at the same time, his aunt who had raised him up in Ellenville, New York. So we moved up there because my father loved his auntie. And so I missed a lot of school because my father checked the school up in Allenville, New York, and they did not say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag or the Our Father. And my father said it was a commie den. (laughs) And it was better that I didn't go to school than went to a communist den. And the nuns at St. Joan of Arc in Jackson Heights agreed with that. So we lived in Allenville a good part of the time for those last two years of grammar school. And I went, and I had nothing to do. I was given homework. I'd go down to the city every you know, every few weeks and take a test or something. But what was great, there were two movie theaters in Ellenville, the Shadowland and the Danbury. And I went every day to the movies. It's first show at 12 o'clock. And it was spectacular. And your father went with you because he was convalescing from his heart attack? No. I went by myself. My, yeah. my, they didn't. I just. You were a little were, kid. Yeah. They didn't ask the little kid up in Ellenville what? what he was doing going to the movies in the middle of the day? They knew. Everybody it was a small Ellenville. Everybody knew. But everybody knew it was my Uncle Frank, my auntie's husband, had been the president of the bank, and everybody knew who we were. So I didn't have to pay. I mean, I was treated. They, and Uncle Frank's bank owned everybody's mortgage. So t- during the week, I'd come back. We'd live in Jackson Heights. But then if you have an Elmo, we'd be like the king. I see you with a giant popcorn and a soda and your feet up just going, ah. Oh, it was great. Such rolling. Oh, and I'd watch him twice. It was just great. And so the movies literally saved my life. And I read and read and read. And, and where did uh, you go to college? I went to Georgetown in Washington. A Catholic college. Had to. You weren't allowed to. Johnny, right. you go to Because it's not a communist den. No. You, I went to St. John's Prep in Williamsburg. And uh, and then, you know, talk about like maybe going to Harvard. And they, the priest there said, Johnny, what's, what's better? You go to Harvard, you get a great education, and you lose your soul. Or <laughs> you go to Catholic college. So maybe it's not it's great. It's a win-win. It's all great, but you come out with your soul intact. Right. Which a, is more valuable? It's a diploma. At the commencement, wow. Jesus gives you the diploma. Wow. That's a great idea. What did you study at Georgetown? Well, we was lucky. when We were there. We had a smart class, and we had, there was the first thing called an honors program. For the last three years, you, you didn't major in anything specifically. Everybody had one speciality that they then would teach the other 19 guys in the class. And we would spend a number of weeks on... You know, on uh, Henry James, and then we'd go to uh, uh, Lobachevsky in Romanian geometry, and then we'd go to history. You know, it was all so it was all it was a very uh, grab bag education that was terrific, but not theater. No, but because not the, writing the national theater. Well, no, because I was writing. I started. They had a. Uh, sec- I can still remember the drama club. There was, was called what? Mask. The, the mask and bauble. How do you know that? Oh, it's it's widely known, Mask and Bobble, that you were affiliated with them. Really? Yeah. I can still remember Kathy Eno. She was the the only Japanese. There weren't many girls around Georgetown, but there was this one girl, Kathy Eno. And I started putting a sign up on a tree that said, playwriting, the first annual playwriting contest at Georgetown, the Mask and Bobble presents. And I said, that's a sign. I took this, I took it down, and I, <laughs> and I wrote the play. And uh, and I yes, and I came in second because I wrote a comedy, and the the first play had to be serious, and the second play was a comedy, second prize play was a comedy, and I wrote a play every year there, and then I went to Yale, and but also the same. You went time, to Yale for what? Playwright. Playwright. So you went to the graduate program at Yale. Yeah, yeah. But I also. Well, what, what, what did your father think about that? What did your fa- were, 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 abs- Did your mother have an opinion? My parents were absolutely thrilled. My father said to me one thing. He said, I don't care what you do, Johnny. Never get a job. Don't end up like me. He hated Wall Street. He said, never be a wage slave. Just even keep it fairly legal if you can. But make when He said, I have one happy moment all day long. I wake up. The alarm goes off. I push the snooze button, roll over, sleep, have a deep sleep for another couple of minutes. And it goes off. And I'm so happy. And then it goes off again. And then my feet hit the ground, and it's downhill the rest of the day. The, the, the Yale program was two years? 
three years. Three three years. Yeah, it still is. Good God. And uh, and I all I went there also because the draft was on in those days, and if I was if you weren't in grad school, you would have been drafted immediately. So I uh, went to Yale, and Yale was just after Georgetown, which was sort of like a little high school, you know, it was like a you know very small. Then I go to Yale, and who spoke to us? We were there about six weeks. Who came and spoke to everybody we went to hear? T. S. Eliot. I said, "This is Yale is really different," and. Uh, it was great. I had a great time. It was very hard, but I had a great time there. And when you left there, what did you st- how did you start? Well, I was incredibly lucky. Tennessee Williams was having something done at the uh, play out of town. I don't know what it was. And Audrey Wood, his agent, was coming up to New Haven to work something out. And there was a storm, something, it rained or something, and the meeting was canceled. And she came to the drama school to see what was on, and I had a, a play on. And she signed me. So I graduated from Yale with Audrey Wood, who was the greatest <laughs> agent in the universe, the one who discovered Tennessee Williams and built his career as my, as my agent. And uh, that really, uh, that was fantastic. Why do, you, why do you think she signed you? I hope because she liked my work. Right, but I mean, when, when she, you had written how many plays when someone signed you out of Yale, you just finished three years, and she, this is right out of Yale. No, I was in Yale. I was, I was under... You're I, still I, in Yale. So yeah. then, then you make my point. You're still in Yale. She thought she I had, sees a show you do. She reads some work you've done. She didn't even read it. She just thought I had possibilities. And, and then when, when you left Yale, what was the first play you had produced? And how long after you left Yale did you well, do that? Well, I got out of Yale. What year? In 63. And I, she got me a job. She said, you don't have any money. And she said, I'm going to get you a job. I got you a job at Universal Pictures. And I went out to California... To work at Universal Pictures. As a writer. To make money, yes. Rewriting screenplays. I didn't know what it was. I would go out there to find out. And I got there, and what was waiting for me when I arrived was my draft notice. And because I still was under 26. And so I literally at the last minute got into the reserves. Then I, then I got out of the service, and I realized I never wanted to be in California again. Why? I hated it. What about it? It wasn't East Long Beach? East Atlantic Beach? East Atlantic I, Beach? My soul would have died in California. I just knew I, I said, that's not for you. Well, it had nothing to do with screenwriting. I mean, I, I mean, there, there was movie life in uh, back east. Well, as my friend said to me once, or he was an agent, he said, I said, do you think so-and-so uh, didn't want to hire me and this one didn't want to hire me? This is, you know, back in the early you know, 2000s, and I said, you think this one doesn't want to hire me because they don't like me or they think I'm going to be difficult to work with? He says, no, I don't think it's that they think badly of you. He said, I think it's that they don't think of you at all. Yeah. And that's to me with L.A. Like, like everything burns bright. You get your three years of, a, of, of the tail of the comet streaming behind you, and then you're gone. I mean, nobody really, really thinks of you at I all. I mean, it's still one of the great moments in my life. It was so shocking and hilarious and I mean, it was, is that I was nominated for an Oscar in 1982. Atlantic City. Atlantic City. And Adele and I went in, you know, to where it was held that year. And there were 500 photographers, you know, maybe say 250 cameramen. Lights, 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 lights. Fantastic. I didn't win. We came out, and there were the 250 cameras waiting there, and they saw Adele and me came out, and as if on signal, all 250 cameras dropped. They just dropped. Yeah. The silence and waited for us to pass. Yeah. It was jaw-dropping. It, I, it was well great. going right to the airport and going home. I did. Right. What was that experience like making that film? Oh, one of the greatest of my life. Mal, you enjoyed working with Mal? Louis became one of my best friends. We became great, 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 great friends. And what was the origin of that? They came to you. You had written the screenplay? No, you were, no. They hired you to write it? <laughs> no. I got a call one day, and this man with an accent said, is this John Guare? I'm looking for John Guare. I said, yes, is he? And he said, did you write that play I would have seen last year at the public theater called Landscape of the Body? I said, yes. He said, ah, I've been looking for you. I would like to talk to you about a project. I said, well, where? He's where? I said, come over. I'm here. So he came over to my apartment. And he said, I have got money to do a thriller with Susan Sarandon and an unnamed male star that is, there's a big tax thing in Canada right now where you get 100% write-off for every, every dollar invested in, uh, in a movie made. 
part of it has to be shot in Canada with the Canadians. And <laughs> with the Canadians. Yes. And he said, the screenplay, we just we have no screenplay. What I hope that is just, it's impossible. We have Susan Sarandon and a building full of Canadians. And no, it was not even, and it was also, what I loved about it was that it was, the money was, it was a rabbi from Winnipeg was in charge of the, uh, of the uh, the fund that was putting this together that had come to Louis to d- d- direct a thriller. And so he said, did I have any ideas for a movie? And I knew that Louis, I'd loved it because he was also made great documentaries. You know, he'd started out life as Jacques Cousteau's cameraman and, uh, you know, dove under the, travel around the world, yes. diving under the sea. Today, the calypso was very quiet. That's right, the silent world. You yes. know, and he, they won an Oscar, you know, and... Our Jackson Heights neighbor when I was a kid was still my mother's, my father's now since long dead, but our neighbor was a man named Tony Ray who was head of Resorts International, the Chalfon Haddon Hall Hotel, which was going to become the first, uh, the first hotel to go, to turn into a casino called Resorts International. And my mother would listen to Dorothy all the time saying how exciting it was that gambling was coming to Atlantic City and going to rescue this town. Because Tony now had moved from the Waldorf down to the Atlantic City. And how thrilling it was. And my mother bought stock in Resorts International. And so, and I kept reading about it in the paper. It's how this whole city was going to change thanks to this. And I said, it seems to be really interesting what's going on down in Atlantic City right now. So he said, let's go down. And we went down and Tony took us around. And the first thing we saw was in, we went into Resorts International, and there was a clam bar, a wet bar. And there was these, all these good-looking girls opening clams. Shucking clams. Shucking clams. We said, what's that? He said, well, to prove that they are serious about, they wanted to be car dealers, they have to work at a job like this for three months before they're able to take lessons, you know, learn how to become car dealers. I said, that's Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon will shuck, will shuck clam. That was the first image it's, we had. the lemons on it for her. Well, that, yes. And her breasts and, right. her, yeah, yeah. and her shoulders. And uh, Anyway, so in that time, we met Skinny D'Amato, who was the number one mobster in town. It was a great, great day. We stayed up all night talking because there were so many rules in Atlantic City, what you had to do in order to qualify for banking to make yourself legit. And I saw a book... Uh, Atlantic City by a girl named Vicki Gold Levi was for sale down there. I forgot her name. Yes, that's what it was. And in it, there was a picture of a gangster's convention in 1929. Al Capone was, you know, the top. up at the top, like the far left corner, there was a young boy smiling in the gangster's convention. And I said, that's our male star. That's him as a young man. He's, he went for that picture, and he's been here ever since. And so the picture just hit, but he said, the only problem is, he said, that... Today is the unnamed I, male star. Where did his character come from? Well, that that guy was that it was the kid, the, the kid, the smiley kid. Yeah, yeah. It was with Lancaster. Well, Brett was like the seventh choice. Louis said, "There's only one problem." He says, "Today is July 29th," and he said, "We have to have the picture in order to qualify for the tax dollars. It ha- we have to finish shooting by December 31st, 1979, this year." Get typing. Get typing. And I did. And two weeks later, I went over to France. Del and I went to France. And I gave him a first draft. And we started working. And we started filming on the uh, end of October. It was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we, we talked, because uh, I just finished doing a film with Will Smith. I did this film about the NFL concussion policy that Peter Landisman wrote and directed. And I told you that I worked with Will, who I'd always loved. I mean, yeah. Will's one of the great <laughs> movie stars uh-huh. of his generation. And we talked about Six Degrees in the film and how you had said... You, you you didn't see him in the part when you first. No, because they, they were they, we were told that uh, the guy who was bringing a lot of money to the picture said he had one his money came with one price that it had to be uh, Will Smith had to play the lead, and I said, well, I don't take TV sitcom, a rap singer, and a TV in my important my dramatic center in my yes, and so. I said no, and so well, we have. But so both Fred Skepsi, who was the director, and I, we agreed that we would meet Will separately, and not, and you know, would flip a coin, and Fred would go first, and then I would go the next night and meet Will, and then we would meet and to decide, you know, if we wanted him or not, because we were ready to, you know, to tank the picture. We'd just say, well, well, you know, if he isn't right, we'll walk from it. And I'll tell you something. I went, and Will opened the door. 
And within 30 seconds, I said, I'd let this guy into my house. I mean, he was just great. He was great. Will was absolutely uh, first rate, was absolutely wonderful. When you, when you produce plays, when you uh, premiere plays, I mean, you're like any playwright, not all of your plays have been as successful as the others. And, and, and the ones that have been successful, do they have something in common, the ones that worked best? I have no idea. But, 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 but of I course, knew, six if, degrees, people are knew, crazy for it. If I knew, I would just push, <laughs> I would push, that, I would just push that button open. You up. keep scooping you that ingredient know. into the pot. There's no play. I know, I'll tell you something, it's not like the, that play was more successful. That, see, that's, uh, I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, to cover my tracks. But I know the reason why I wrote every play I wrote. What that, that play is not whether it's a failure or a success. I mean, it might be whatever the reviews are, which are like consumer report. You know what your life will be. Should I get that job teaching? You know, what, what should I do, you know, to get the money next year? Or else, hey, we can take, you know, wow, we might have, you know, things might be good. We can, you know, uh, uh, but I know the reason why I wrote that play. And uh, I can look back in the past and say, oh, damn, I see how I screwed that up. I see what, what, I, see what, what I did wrong in that. But I, must, I can't fix that play, but I, I must be aware of that in the next play. Uh, no, so, I mean, there's no button that you push to say. I mean, how many people have destroyed their careers because they say how, and they keep trying to write the same recreate. play. Recreate. Recreate the same play. So you have no idea. And if you knew... If you said, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know what, I think I'm going to write, but now, <laughs> now, and I'm going to have two flowers, and then I'm going to push the hit button, and I'm going to write that. Yeah, yeah. it's as I plan. No. And then I put that hit combination, that hit no, recipe. That's, it's, uh, no, there's no such thing as a hit recipe. It's all in the lap of the Is there one that was less commercially successful than the others that you have a tremendous fondness for? Is there one that you sit there that's your child that you love the most? I wouldn't dare to pick one of them. I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, they're all, you know. Yeah, I mean, why bother? Yeah, I don't have any favorites. Got it. Is there something that your characters in many, if not all, of your plays have in common? Is there something that they're striving for? Is there something that they're seeking? Is there something you're working out yourself that's manifest in all of the plays or most of the plays you write? It has to to be. I mean, what would that be? I don't know. You just want the best. You want the best. Are they truth seekers? They want the truth? Because my ultimate question is, are you you as honest as the characters are in your play? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, of course I am. I, am I as on? I, I, I have no idea. I mean, I would think that would be. Uh, I can't. You'll have to ask other people. In my own mind, I'm perfectly. We'll call your wife. Ask Adele. Yes. Uh, let me get to her first. Yes. <laughs> and uh, no, but it's um, no. I mean, I think they. So I think they all want something. I think they all want something ineffable. I think it's a, maybe some sort of divine, in the largest sense of the word, divine dissatisfaction. Is this all there is? Is this, I want, I want more, I want more, I want. What do you want more of, or what did you want more of? Well, I don't know what I wanted. I just wanted immortality. <laughs> you know, it's just as simple as that. Do you, you have that? Of course not. Of course not. No, I, I do. All, all I know is, you know, but Kitty Hart, remember Kitty Carlisle? Of course. I love Kitty, and she said, John, I'm not a religious person, but I have one prayer that I say every day. Oh, dear God, I don't want anything more. Just let me keep what I have. <laughs> and that, to me, is the best. That's all settled for that now. You go to the theater? You go see theater? Absolutely. Right now, the one— How has it changed in your lifetime? Is it, is it basically the same, or you feel it has changed, the Broadway theater? There are things like, you know— uh, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night, which is th- still thrilling. You know, you just say theater's dead, and then you go see that, and you just say, it's from a book I, I didn't like especially, and you go see it, and your eyes jaw drops at how wonderful it is. And I'm going to see Hamilton this weekend. Sure. And uh, see Nathan out I'm seeing it tomorrow night. I'm seeing Nathan, Nathan tomorrow yeah. night. And, uh, Have a double espresso. And, oh, it's going to be great. And Hallie Pfeiffer, this young playwright, has a, a, a remarkable play down at uh, Atlantic Theater called I'm Going to Pray for You So Hard. Uh, I mean, there's always stuff to see. I love— You I enjoy. To, I go to— the And the economics doesn't—you don't find that daunting or different. It's well, a, it was ever thus, or it's well, different? Well, 
I don't know. I mean, luckily, I'm a Tony voter, so I get a pair of tickets every show, which means a lot. But, uh, I mean, the, I was shocked at the price of the tickets for, for um, Iceman Cometh. You know, so the theater's always been dying. It's always been horrible. It's always been terrible. It's always been—no, I mean, it's just there it is. It's just, it's just there. Do you think that New York is still the most democratic city? Uh, Has New York changed in your lifetime? Or is that still the same? Well, no. I mean, I mean, my New York is so many landmarks. My my personal landmarks are missing. You know, from. Uh, I mean, I when I first came to New York fifty years ago, when I first got, when I get, get out of the Air Force, I, I had an apartment, corner of Fourth Street and Tenth Street, in the village, fourth floor walk up, twenty foot ceiling with a skylight, wood burning fireplace, eat in kitchen, and a bathroom looking out on, on the fourth floor, looking out into gardens below. What was the rent? What was the rent? Eighty dollars a month. Thirty two. Okay. Thirty two dollars a month. Uh, you could really live in New York, and I just but kids now live in. Find new places to live. The, the rules are always the rules are always changing, and we're always looking for Paris in the 1920s. And it was a really rare time uh, in the early 60s in New York with Cafe Chino and La Mama and the off-off Broadway scene, which had never there had never been anything like it in New York before. And uh, yeah, so do I miss New York? No, I mean, I'm so... Th- New York's still... I was born here, conceived here, drug up here, and it still makes my jaw drop with something you say, wow, wow, I never... It's thrilling. The theater, John Guare says, is a place of dreams where you lay out the unconscious and make it visible. After the break, I'll talk with Lisa Duan, a London-based actress who's now tackling the works of another influential playwright who exposes the unconscious, Samuel Beckett. Take a listen to our archive, where director Stephen Daldry told me about the difference between working in theatre and film. One is that in the theatre, everybody's in the same room. So everybody can see what the beast is. Everyone can see what it's made, and you start at the beginning and you finish, and the people you start with are the people you finish with. In the movies, the people you, you prep with aren't the people you shoot with, and the people you shoot with aren't the people you finish with, and the people you finish It's more like a relay race, making a movie. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. No matter, parents unknown, unheard of, even vanished. Not I is a one-woman play by Samuel Beckett, performed here by my next guest, Lisa Dwan. On the speechless infant in the home, no. Nor indeed, for that matter, any of any kind. No love of any kind at any subsequent stage. It's a typical affair. Nothing of any note till coming up to 60 when... What? The physical demands of Not I are extreme. And who better to rise to them but a classically trained dancer like Dwan. For the past year, Dwan has performed three Beckett plays together, Not I, Footfalls, and Rockabye, last year at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, last month at London's Barbican. Lisa Dwan had done Not I on its own before, but wasn't convinced she could do the trilogy. But Martin Sheen, her co-star in a movie about the Bhopal disaster, suggested a one-woman show. At the time, Duan, an attractive petite blonde, was tired of the roles she was being offered. She was desperate for a challenge. I was feeling very frustrated. You know, being a woman of a particular look, <laughs> you're given these kind of cardboard cutouts, these pithy little lines, these one-dimensional little flimsy roles. And it's demoralizing. It's depressing. I mean, I sprung on the scene thinking I was like... The guys. Right. <laughs> when I wanted to become, I was a ballet dancer first, and when I became an actress. And I, you made that transition because you were injured. Yeah. Ballet ended because of an injury. Yeah. Would you have kept on if you could have? Probably. That was your passion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I found I could express myself so much more as a dancer. And Truly? Yeah. Um, it seems you've gone from one extreme to the other because dancing, which is purely physical, and Beckett, which for, in my mind, at least the pieces you're doing, are strictly about language. No, yeah. I disagree. Tell in fact, I feel I dance more now and express myself more through kind of the principles of dance than I ever did. In which of the three dancing. pieces or all of them? All of them. All of them. And not I, which is you know, such a contradiction, the most. I feel like an element in Not I. I don't even feel like a woman or a human being. I feel like an element. And the fact that my head is strapped in and my uh, arms are strapped in and into this head harness so I don't move, so my mouth is eight foot above the, the stage and doesn't move out of this pinprick of light. So, so for people to understand, because we're, we're getting okay. to this we're, a we've little sooner. Right in. We've gotten right into it. I'm going to try to kind of tiptoe up on the, the Beckett and the not I tableau. But now that we've gotten right to the, to the steak and potatoes here, we're skipping the salad course, ladies and gentlemen. For those who don't know, Briefly describe for us what you're talking about, the contraption and everything. When you look at it, if isolation of the physical mouth, the tableau is of a mouth speaking and everything else is blacked out, and you will explain how that's achieved, mm -hmm. but it couldn't have been achieved in some more simple way? You couldn't have been sitting in a chair and they put they draped something over you? Or? Yeah, I'm sure it could. Um, <laughs> Rebecca demands sacrifice. <laughs> no, in fact, he's not some sort of fetishist or something. As a matter of fact, could you hold this cactus between your knees <laughs> while you're performing? Uh, I wouldn't put it past him, but I don't think that was his intention. And I think if technology had caught up with him, I mean, he's such an innovator in theatre. I would love him to be around today because you could just imagine what he could do with holograms well, we're, we're, we're going to talk we're going we're gonna, yeah, we're, we're to back it on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> well I don't think you'd be interested in that but I just think technology could offer expression you know we're gonna do, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Beckett 
ethos, if you will, or pathos, but describe to me, because mm. with this kind of thing, I find this fascinating, describe to me how the day begins doing the not I process. You wake up and what's the day like to the moment that they're, you know, they're greasing you up with the black face and strapping you into the contraption? Sure. Well, just for the listeners at home who don't know what this is like, Not I is a disembodied mouth eight foot above the stage. It was a play that was written in 1971 and Beckett wrote it in a stream of consciousness, although I don't hear just one stream of consciousness. I hear layers of them, a kind of cacophony of voices. But it was first performed in 1971 in the Lincoln Centre. Jessica Tandy performed it. That was the first one? Was it American? Yeah. Yeah. Um, She did it in about 23 minutes. And Beckett went backstage and said, you've destroyed my play. Oh, uh, I mean, it didn't harm her career, clearly. Right. Um, but he then wrote to Alan Schneider and said, I'd like to direct Billy Whitelaw on this myself and find out if it's theatre or not. And, and he had had an ongoing relationship. Whitelaw was his muse. Well, just the year before, she had performed Play, which is these three people in urns and these kind of fragmented monologues. So Becky was really working towards Not I. It was always part of a trajectory of pairing away, stripping away the unnecessary. This is when we get into late Beckett, which is distilled language. I mean, art is reduction. And early Beckett is when he really had the albatross of Joyce around his neck, you know, the verbosity and the, in my view, slightly pretentious inaccessibility. You know, Beckett, late Beckett. I'll let you say that. Okay. (laughs) You're the Beckett interpreter who can label Joyce anyway. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just uh, shameless, I guess. But you're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. You've earned it. (laughs) (laughs) After what I've seen. But go ahead, continue. I'll never be allowed to perform Joyce (laughs) again. Never, never, never. (laughs) But anyway, uh, I first heard about this play when I was about 18, just around when I started to kind of start acting after my, my knee injury. So that was 18? Yeah, when I first heard about it. And meanwhile, I was doing this awful TV series where I was the leading lady and I, I just felt embarrassed. Um, Why? I just felt very underused. Oh, that's what you think a woman is? Uh you know, uh, so maybe a woman never... in not, not very complex roles. No, words, the role. the no, job, no you're what, probably what? sick of hearing this. But no, no. What, what's the what, what's the job? The job was what? Like a soap? Yeah, it was a TV series, an American TV series. I did 56 episodes of a, a leading actress, and this was what my first professional gig. Yeah, my it, first professional gig was a soap opera too. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you have all of these romantic notions. I was reading the Greeks. I wanted to play Antigone, you know, back when women were multifaceted and multidimensional. Well, you you made that mistake of bringing your appetite for foie gras to the hot dog stand there, which (laughs) many people do. Yeah, that was a mistake you made. But whereas I, when I did a television series like that, I thought to myself, okay, what is this? You'd been acting. Yeah. But you did 56 episodes, and it wasn't. It was less about the material than you being cast and how they saw women. Yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. So did you start to develop your roles and, and, and build the depth in what you were given as opposed to— I think that for me, I remember the, the, the best way to define it was I felt like I was a guest in people's house. And then a few years went by, and by the time I probably made my eighth film, I'm sitting on a set and I'm going, you know, I've made as many films now as you have. You're the director. Okay. I have enough experience now to say, I don't think I'd do that. You, you can't do good work in film or television without good directors. Otherwise, they're just obstacles. But, but I want to get Whereas back. Whereas in theater, in that moment, you have ultimate control. And with Beckett, he removes really the necessity for directors. It really is a direct communication between the writing and the actor. Do, do you have some knowledge or insight, because this would be fascinating, as to what Beckett's relationships were with the directors of his material? You see, Beckett's work is so multifaceted. You know, he he took care of absolutely everything. He still takes care of absolutely everything from beyond the grave. So all the stage directions, I mean, they are like art installations. He writes his score. I wish I had it actually to show you. But like you look at the early drafts of Footfalls, the middle play that I do, which is highly complex and probably one of Beckett's least understood plays. But it's written like a score of music. So you have these bars. We're on the third bar, May, and the the length of time spoken. He works out every step. So he's also a choreographer. 
So, you know, it's high poeticism, both visually, orally and emotionally. And I feel Beckett's communicating directly with that instrument, which is me or whoever the actor is. And the director has to just kind of service that and get out of the way and not try to place their own stamp or ego on it. And I mean, I've, I've seen productions where it's such and such does Crab's Last Tape and they want to make it, you know, put their own stamp on it. And really, I feel Becca can hang you out to dry. You start to watch this kind of tug of war between the language and the music and what this person is trying to do. And quite frankly, I've always felt that Beckett always wins. Now, that's not to say... <laughs> that's well said. That's if not you try, to say... If you, if you try to interpret Beckett, you're going to get some kind of metaphysical electric shock from Beckett. <laughs> that's not to say that there isn't room for interpretation. There's plenty scope. I don't move away that much from the the stage directions, although I did take a big kind of leap with footfalls, which is normally played by two actresses. I played both roles, this 90-year-old woman off stage and May, who's on stage in her 40s. So I played both roles and put together a kind of quite academic argument for the Beckett estate and thankfully they gave me the thumbs up and it kind of worked because I wasn't kind of stepping away too much from what I felt was Beckett's intention. Within that realm, there's just so much scope. Before we talk about the, the triptych of the three pieces together. Yeah, which go you, back to Not I well you, well, you did Not I first <laughs> yeah. and thought you didn't have the capacity to do all three at yeah. one point. You said, oh, I don't think I can do that yeah. when someone began to suggest that. Yeah. Talk about on a night you do all three or even Not I, what's the day like for you? Describe what it's like. Yeah, so I get up in the morning and I meditate because Not I is a beast. No matter how long I've been doing it, it's daunting and frightening and demands the most extreme uh, form of concentration. And, you know, in a crass sense, Not I is a representation of thought. And when you're in it, you really realize he's a genius because it's exactly how my mind works. And when I read it first... Should I be scared to be in this booth with you? (laughs) That's how your mind works? I think in different places, the different plays resonate more or less. And not I resonate very strongly here in New York because of the loudness of people. It's manic. The pace here is just manic. Mm. And we're all feeling, you know, highly caffeinated, (laughs) stressed out individuals trying to keep pace. People are awake here. Yeah. Or or struggling to stay awake here. (laughs) They're they're very awake or they're punchy, but but they're in the ring and leading with their left. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, probably one of the biggest beasts or obstacles when doing not I is your own internal not I. So here I am trying to say this impossible piece at the speed of thought, which is what Beckett wanted, with my head tied into a harness so I don't move out of light. So I usually rehearse in the banisters at home. I tie my head with a scarf into the banisters to train my diaphragm you and live my alone, mouth. I take it. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got very understanding neighbours. Your poor loved ones. <laughs> I'm over here, honey. <laughs> Let's put the groceries down on the table. I'm my face is lashed to the banister. <laughs> Wait, so when it's meditation, mm-hmm. and then I read somewhere where you do the piece a few times mm-hmm. in the morning because no matter how many times you do it, uh, you you have to kind of take a bite out of it during the day Absolutely. and just and get a little bit of a run into it. And then you know, I use three different forms of memory. One is the oral, so you know, like a song or anything like that. The next is the narrative, which isn't that difficult. It's just very fragmented and there's all these interruptions and insurrections and things like that. And then there's how the piece looks on the page, which is kind of my my visual peg. So... Isn't memorization just bizarre? Isn't it? How you remember. And the mnemonics you create. Mm. Like if I have a list of adjectives or a list of institutions or a list of names, I'll sit there and I'll say to someone, I'll go, well, you realize that uh, he's just preposterously wealthy and uh, sophisticated. And I'll sit there and I'll go, P-W-S, P-W-S. I'll say that to myself. I mean, the games we play. I know. And you need a few. Maddening. Yeah, you need a few different... um, uh, Tricks. Yeah. So you do the piece a few times. You get to the theater, 8 o'clock curtain. Let's say you're there what time, typically? I come in early and do a run in the head harness with my stage manager. You do? Yeah. Because the head harness is a whole different... I mean, I could perform the piece here for you now, and all the energy leaks away. Yeah. 
And it's a lot easier and it sings and you see all the kind of dexterity and you see the traffic coming and going around my face. And I could say the traffic because these are the little waves, a stream of consciousness, you know, the, the roads of Ireland, the sounds of Ireland. And then you lock it tight and something else happens and you just go deep, deep, deep into my consciousness. You know, I can't see. I've got black makeup from my cheekbones to my collarbone. And then I just release the lips. I just, I don't wear lipstick or anything. I just take off the black where the lips should be. And then I put on a blindfold and a shawl. And then I slip into the head harness so I can't see or hear. And then my arms are put into brackets and I can't move. And all of that energy, all the kind of the pace and the roads and the judgment of Ireland and the hilarity well, and the my, humor. My, my, my vision of it, so just so the audience can get this uh, sense, I don't want to lose this idea, is when I saw the visual, the pictures, it's almost like you're on a massage table and your face <laughs> is through that cradle, you know what I mean? And then there's a bar that goes across your back that kind of smashes you into the massage uh-huh. table. You know, Then they tilt the table straight up. It's, it's a weird position you're put in. Well, it's not something dissimilar from something you'd see in Abu Ghraib with the waterboarding. Mm-hmm. Just turn the other way, you know. It does feel like a torture device. But then something bizarre happens. So just to, from the audience point of view, and going back to when I first heard about this play, I remember this great Beckett actor, Stephen Brennan, when I was in the middle of this TV series, he's my father, and I'm just pent up with all of this kind of, I suppose what I recognize now is artistic frustration, but I didn't know what it was then. I was just frustrated. (laughs) And uh, he told me about Not I, and he said, there's this play, which is the toughest play. Many actors have gone mad trying to learn it, but this disembodied mouth hovers across the stage. And even though the mouth is locked into place because of the sensory deprivation in an entirely blackened out auditorium, the mouth appears to osculate or travel across the audience. And that's different for everybody in the audience. They all experience an optical illusion. Does it move? Yeah. Fires around the place for people. And it's different for every member of the audience. No, I don't move. But the audience thinks I'm moving. And I think Becca takes that to the extreme here. And this is why you feel so safe. This is why I can splay myself onto this torture chamber. Because he's taking care of everything. I don't know if you've ever felt like that with another writer. But... You know, one of his rehearsal periods with with Billy White, he said, Billy, Billy, bring your pencil over here. Three lines down, four words in. Can you make those three dots two dots? And he took out a dot. And if a writer can be that pedantic about that, you can pretty much feel safe about the whole. And I just feel his genius makes me feel so held that all I have to do is give him everything. Do you find it difficult not to channel white law? I was lucky. The sequence of events and how I ended up doing Beckett, I've just been incredibly lucky. I hadn't seen white law's performance, and it's on YouTube and I didn't watch it when I first got cast. So I had the image in my mind, I've still never seen Not I in the theatre, only my performance. So I only know what it's like to be in it. When I read the script, I heard Ireland. I heard my father. I heard the streets of Athlone and the scorn and the bitterness and the nuns and the humour and my family and there's my aunt. It became my personal landscape. And I didn't have this kind of reverential, holy grail feelings of intimidation in regards to Beckett. I suppose I was slightly sacrilegious or, or you know... It I might just, as well have been rap to you. Well, no, but it was home. Oh. And it was mine. And I think that's why I got the part, you know. And then my director said, I don't want you to see Billy's performance. This has to be yours. And that was hard to do because Billy and Beckett, it's like a natural call of response. It's a singer-songwriter. Yeah. And, and I avoided it. And then Edward Beckett came to the opening night in 2005 and said, you know, I think you could meet Billy now that you found your own way. And we met each other. Did she come see you? No. She was quite reclusive at that point. 
but she agreed to meet me because she'd never met anyone who'd played Not I. And, and she we, was a beautiful woman too when she was young. She was gorgeous. I've seen shots of her. Could people forget that about White Law? Because she played, you know, the, the, the wacky nun in The Omen or the, yeah. the nanny in The Omen. Yeah. Very severe and very kind of uh, uh, scary. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the older, middle-aged Billy White Law. But young Billy White Law, I looked online and there was She's these gorgeous. photos. Of, She's like ravishing. I know. She's like the smoking hot woman. Busty and, you know, and yeah. she played that when she did Happy Days as well, you know. She was no kind of caricature. She no. was she, she was a leading lady when yeah. she was when she was younger. Yeah. But but so you finally met her. So I met her and we greeted each other like long lost war veterans and it was just this immediate <laughs> access. She's a comrade. Yeah. And, and she, you know, we were straight into the most intimate details. And where did you go? And what did you think of this? And, you know, when did you swallow? Did you feel like a pelican? Yes, yeah, so did I. <laughs> you know, and, and also I asked her a lot about Beckett and stuff. And I'm so lucky. And if there's anything I can ever pass on to any other actor in the future, if they ever want anything from me, is to remove all the... Am I allowed to swear? No, I'll think of you something. Can swear. To, remo- to remove all the kind of rubbish. If you don't swear, I'm going to be upset now. All the bullshit surrounding Beckett. Um, uh, I can do better, but we'll You know who I am, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) But but if we can remove all of that and really get down to the crux of the matter, to the truth. Like, I'm only beginning to find out, actually, and I think Beckett is what has taught me this. Beckett and maybe a few other things. But I don't know if I really knew what truth sounded like. And being Irish, we can pretend to be all heart in your sleeve and sure, we're so open and, you know, and that's an act. But when you hear real truth, you can't argue with that. And Beckett is the type of artist that if you try and bring him anything less than that, he hangs you out to dry. But how do you feel? Because I want to get back to... The night of, and then the three, and then the three pieces yeah. together. But how do you feel when you say that? I want to read you a quote. You talk about how Beckett looked down the barrel of life. Mm. Was a quote I got from mm. you, and you said I met David Hare recently, and he said he wasn't convinced that Beckett believed his own worldview. Yeah. That if he had, he wouldn't have gotten out of bed in the morning. Yeah. The truth is, he didn't often get out of bed. He was a depressive. He was considered maladjusted. He suffered a great deal, and people have said to me, meaning you, you know, Beckett's a very cruel writer. It might be okay for him to describe the world in that way, but the rest of us need our delusions, unquote. Well, there's a certain amount of truth in that. But once you've looked down the barrel of life that way, it's very hard to forget what you've seen. Now, how do you think this is going to affect your work, meaning when you do something that's as raw or whatever adjective you want to use, that's as truthful, that was the word I think you used, when you do a piece that reaches into you the way this has reached into you? What do you do when you go to work and it's not that? I don't know. You know, and I remember after meeting Billy, she wanted to direct me. She wanted to pass on Beckett's notes. And I had been trying to do Beckett as I thought Beckett should be done. You know, I'd heard no colour and don't act. And I was trying to kind of put this kind of monotone and not be too indulgent. And, you know, I come from a strict classical ballet world. So I was adopting that kind of control and technique and not trying to be flashy in all of that kind of stuff. And Billy said, what are you doing? Bring that all in. Because I was resisting these urges, my own landscape, you know, my own sense of home and what that provokes in me. Bring that all in. And then the piece just started to sing. And it was unlike anything that had been done before in Not I. And it worked. So Billy, Billy in 2009 directed the version I did solo then without any director. And the night or the week I was opening, she went into hospital and that was it. And she was so desperate to pass on the notes. But I read a review that night and it said this is going to spoil her for anything else. Ah, don't be daft for Christ's sake. You know, Beckett, it's a highly disciplined work, but, you know, you can't have a symphony all the time. You can have occasional pop song. He does. Once you've tasted truth to that, level, once you've had the most multifaceted, expansive landscape to work in, you're completely spoiled. So they strap you in. Uh-huh. When you do the, the three pieces, Not I is the first? Yes. 
and then you take off the makeup in the yeah. rig and you do the other two pieces. In two minutes. You, you, you de-rig from that eye in, in two, minutes two minutes to then go and do the other piece. Yeah. So you're strapped in and you're in the on the launch pad there and it's five, four, three, two, go. Yeah. Do you get it letter perfect every night? More or less. There's the odd time I skip a section, you know, a little two words or something like that and give my stage manager a heart attack because she can't find it. She can't keep up at that kind of speed. But it's terrifying because, you know, it is a tightrope act. If I trip up or make a mistake, I've killed the piece. Um, But what happens, and this is where I feel like (laughs) I'm an element. So there I am, unable to move or see or hear. And I take flight. So while the audience are experiencing this hallucination, so all the exit signs are taken out, every LED, everything is just blacked out, and they're experiencing this optical illusion of these lips hovering about the stage and moving rapidly or coming really close to them or going further away and just moving like a spaceship, I feel like I'm taking flight. And that's a bizarre experience where I feel I'm circling around the auditorium. It's a bizarre experience. Then two minutes to decompress, if you will, Uh to go to the next piece. And the next piece is what? Footfalls. And that's a piece about what? Among other things, it's like a chamber piece of music, but it's an exploration of trauma and conflict. Well, it's a duologue with myself, with my mother in my head, the critic. And it's, it's this call and response. You know, Beckett described it as kind of thuggy, She's trying to kill the voice in her head, the oppressor, the critic. And what's the third piece? Rockabye, which is like um, being rocked to death. Summoning death. Well, I think death is summoning her. Are you afraid to die? Well, the thing about Beckett's characters, they kind of laugh of death. They've been... Do they? Well, they've been dead already, you know? These works are a kind of haunting. I don't know. I kind of feel the death are among us, you know, either in our minds or in the ether. You do these pieces and you do especially Not I, which is this very difficult piece in your personal life without getting too personal. Do you like things to be when Lisa Dwan goes home? Does she like everything to be nice and easy? Or do you like it complex and challenging in all things? I tend to gravitate towards those. You know, my mother said, ah, would you stop doing that now? You'd be like Joan Crawford. (laughs) Comedy next, you know. But I guess one of the things I find hard, and I don't want to sound like one of those kind of whinging women, but I do find it hard when people present. Like I went to see Angels in America. Amazing play. What a poet. What a poet. What amazing nuanced roles. Was it Multifaceted, yeah. It was the Eva Van Hove. But all these amazing complex roles for men. The women get, you know, the two stereotypes. The hysterical wife and the, the mother. Well, you know? Ethel, well, Ethel the Rosenberg mother. is in there now. <laughs> well... It's frustration. Well, we're we're going to get to that lastly. But what has Beckett, what has the truth or truths that Beckett compels us to look at or stare down, if you will, what's it told you about being Irish? Oh, I don't know much about what it means to be Irish, to be honest. I have a complex relationship with Ireland as Beckett did, you know, kind of loving and loathing of the place. What do you love about it? Uh, the poetry, the poetry in the everyday language, uh, the humor, um, the beauty of it, the music, you know, the inherent music and poetry. What do you, loathe about, what do you loathe about it? Oh, the small-mindedness, the tall poppy syndrome, the uh, misogyny. <laughs> I sound like such an angry feminist. Maybe it's a phase I'm going through. But well, but when you say phase, is it something you felt this way throughout? You've been acting for a while now. Have you have you felt this? I don't think I had the balls to put my finger on it. Uh, and I'm nowhere near your level or, or anybody's level. Well, I wouldn't but, go that far. Yeah. But, you know, where you can actually just allow yourself, give yourself permission to have a viewpoint. And I suppose Beckett's kind of pushed me in that direction where I start to notice things. No, you're trying to squeeze me into this little... Box. You can't come at truth from that direction. Do you know, it comes from 
another place. And that's what Beckett has taught me more than anything. I had to use my personal landscape, my own story, the wounds of... I don't know, rejection, uh, uh, whatever I I grew up with. I use those, you know, really ordinary things, these these wounds, these weapons, and when the bell goes and foot falls, I pick those scabs and they bleed up. Well, let let me just mention this because we're we're, going to run out of time here. And I want to say, you have a lot of energy. You have a lot of creative energy. I mean, you're like a real, you know, flame, you know. And in your work, you're doing this remarkably difficult work and this remarkably precise work and this remarkably disciplined work that you're nailing. I mean, people are, you know, lauding you and saying all these wonderful things. But you are someone who, as I said to you before, there are princesses of the theater, which they have a seat here in New York for you. They got a seat here for you. They're ready for you. You come here, you're going to work. You're going to work and work and play great roles. And whether you do head of gabbler or whatever, you, you, they've got a lot of parts here for you to play. So well, look, when are you moving here? <laughs> <laughs> That's really kind of you. And but do you need the name of a broker? <laughs> I have one for you. I need everything. Um, but you should come here. I'd love to come here, but there's but, but, no— but, but, but know that, that, that doesn't mean there's, there's going to be opportunity here, not necessarily happiness. Oh, I've, you know I've given up happiness. <laughs> See, that's the, that's the Irish landscape. <laughs> happiness. What's that? <laughs> I wouldn't recognize it if it bit me in the arse. Well, I'll tell you what. That's another thing about Beckett. You know, he's hilarious and he laughs at our situation. But you know what? He doesn't sell us anything. He doesn't. He doesn't sell us anything. He doesn't and he play is, with us. He, well, he's at war with sentimentality. And he has taught me what, you know, emotional gangsters are. He's been great at helping me not pick the duds uh, that I, uh, I used to draw in the past, you know. And uh, he's been great at kind of helping me to thine own self be true. It's a big eye-opener. And I think I could move to a place like New York with that kind of strong sense of myself and maybe not fall apart if things don't work out as planned. I have a hunch things will work out very well for Lisa Duan if she makes the move. She'll have another chance to try out New York Living when she performs two more Beckett pieces at Lincoln Center this fall. Billy Whitelaw will not be there to guide Duan. The actress passed away in December last year. This is Alec Baldwin, You're listening to Here's the Thing. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 